This is the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakta Shahadi. Each week I dive into deep conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardship, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to expand perspectives and share voices of diverse identities. How can you navigate a difficult conversation? How can one become a better communicator? And what's the evolutionary purpose of conversation? These are just some of the questions that Misha Globerman and I follow in this episode of Stories of Transformation. Misha is an expert communicator, facilitator, and artist who lives in Toronto, Canada. He's also the author of The Chairs Are Where the People Go, How to Live, Work, and Play in the City. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we take a deep dive into the essence of conversation, how it works, and some of the common pitfalls that people face, as well as how to overcome them. Misha provides some practical tips on how to cultivate better conversations. For example, methods to increase efficiency, ways to maximize productivity, and also ways to strengthen relationships through earnest listening and authenticity. His insights are incredibly profound and surprisingly simple, and best of all, Many of them are directly applicable to conversations in everyday life, regardless of the medium that you hold these conversations in, whether they be in person or online. I found this conversation with Misha to be insightful, enlightening, and educational. As always, please take a moment to share this conversation far and wide, especially with those that could use it most. So without further delay, I bring you Misha Globerman. Misha Globerman, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. And and more importantly, I'm really kind of curious to know about your work, how you kind of found your work, and you know the importance of communicating with each other and how to better communicate with each other, and also learning about some tactical things that we can essentially utilize in our own lives and learn from you from in this in this conversation. What I'd like to do to kind of start the conversation off is by asking you a simple yet important question. In your own words, how would you kind of define who you are? I don't know. I mean, in work, what I've been saying for a while is I help people communicate better, help people talk about what matters. It's probably the main thing. And I think that's a, a pretty deep part of who I am, too. But it shifts a lot, too. Mm-hmm. And um, how would you go about answering the question, you know, how did you find your work? Or, or some people like to say, how did your work find you? How did that all kind of take place? Sure. I mean, the work found me through a very, very long path, and it's still finding me. I mean, I don't think I don't think there's like a story with an endpoint. I think it's a story that's a ongoing exploration, and I think that becomes more and more clear. I think as it goes on, it's not like, oh, right, this is this is the the end of the story. This is what I do. That's interesting. And so, was there like a moment in your life or an experience in your life that kind of allowed you kind of come to this realization that this was something that you were not only really good at, but this is something you kind of wanted to do? Like, I guess, you know, what was the thing that kind of brought this to your attention, so to speak, that this was something that you uh, really wanted to throw yourself at? I think one thing I really remember from when I was a kid that always feels sort of related to this stuff was that, like, I remember being in a classroom and like a situation would happen regularly. And it'd be like in like grade school, like I'd be in a classroom and a teacher would say something and then a kid would ask a question. I'd be like, oh, I see what the kid missed there. And then the teacher would give an answer that didn't address what the kid was asking about. And I'd say, oh, I see what the teacher was missing and what the kid, and I was like, oh, like, I was like, I have like a superpower here. Like I'm really good at just understanding how people are communicating, where they're misunderstanding each other, where the misunderstandings are lying. 
it was just like time would stop and I'd just be like, oh, okay, great. I see where they're, you know, I see what's going on there. And so that's always been something that I've been uh, interested in and good at. And then moving forward then, how did you kind of form this in your professional life? Like how did it kind of take shape then? Was it like all of a sudden, did you go to school for this or was it something you kind of dabbled in or how did it all kind of take shape? What sort of led me to the work was an experience of exploration, of external exploration, not internal discoveries. So like what led me to the work was I was working on a conference with a friend of mine and a friend of mine was like, hey, Misha, you might be really interested in this course that I teach. Let me show you the materials from the course. And he showed me the materials from the course. And I was like, oh my God, that's really interesting. So part of it was like sort of like, oh, wow, these are things I've been thinking about forever. But also because I was in the midst of a bunch of conflicts in my residence association where I feel like I was learning some hard lessons. And I was like, oh, this illustrates the hard lessons that I think that I'm learning. It does that really well. And so very quickly, I was like, I want to come to see this course that you're teaching. And very quickly, I was like, I also want to teach this course. This is stuff that I'm really, really interested in. So part of it was sort of what you describe of like, oh, wow, this is something really good for me. But in terms of the sort of the kind of meta lesson of transformation, which I kind of feel is what you're interested in. For me, the, the, the greater meta lesson is the meta lesson of like, go look out in the world and see what there is. You know, one of the things I really try to take from that experience, apart from just like, oh my God, this is the stuff I want to teach for the rest of my life, is like to try to create conditions of serendipity. And so just understanding that like, there's something out there that's amazing for you that you don't know about is I think for me kind of the broader lesson. Like, I, you know, I think I was like, you know, in my late thirties when I saw that and I was like, whoa, holy crap. Like there's a thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize know that. I didn't even really realize that was a thing, you know? No, I think that's great. And it's, and it's wonderful because you're speaking from a place of having a deep seated sense of curiosity about the world and your relationship to it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And for those that are always exploring, that never leaves us. Yeah. Right. That never leaves us. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's something that, for me, that was the big thing there. Mm-hmm. And so, Misha, what I'd like to do now is drill down into your work. How would you kind of frame the body of your work? Most of the work that I do around the communication space is like about helping people get better at it. So it's not so much like, I'm going to help you resolve this conflict that's right in front of you right now. It's, I'm going to help you get better at talking about tough issues. And I might do that for you individually as someone who comes take a class. I might do that with you organizationally and trying to help shift your culture toward a place where your culture can do that more. But that's sort of more the the part of the business that I'm in. And then in terms of the work that I do, I think there's been a shift over the years. And so I think if you read about me, it's sort of all in the present. But for me, there's a real kind of storyline. And the storyline for me was when I got into this stuff, the stuff that I was really learning was about negotiation. And so it was about resolving conflicts. It was about crafting agreements. Um, it was about those kinds of things. But pretty much instantly, I was interested in that as a framework for helping people just have more fruitful conversations and get better at talking about important issues with each other. And so a lot of the work that I do now, it's not even so much exactly about negotiating an agreement or even resolving a conflict. It's more about talking about things that are sort of tough to talk about, about having good conversations about things that are tough to talk about. Mm -hmm. But what you're kind of sharing is really, really curious because the things that are difficult to talk about are the most important things in our lives, right? Like who we are, how we're in relationship with ourselves, how we're in relationship with other people, how we're in relationship with our work, how we perceive other people, how other people kind of maybe perceive us. So why is it difficult to have these sorts of conversations? And, and what does it say about the nature of the human condition? Help us bridge that gap. It's hard for us. It's hard for us to do that. And I think one of the first steps 
is understanding that it's hard for us and acknowledging that it's hard for us and also being okay that it's hard for us. You know, one of the things I really always try to work on in all the training work I do and all the work is that like this isn't remedial work. The idea isn't like you're sort of coming in and like you're broken and we're going to fix you. You're sometimes great at this stuff. Like we're all sometimes great at it. We're all sometimes not great at it. And also like if it's hard for you, that's because you're a human being. Like it's hard for all of us. It's hard for me. I mean, I'm I'm naturally good at this stuff and I've made it my life to like study it and get better at it. And it's still hard for me. It's still hard for me and I screw up and I mess up. I think it's hard for everyone. And I think, I think that's really important. So I think part of it is just understanding that. And in terms of why it's hard, it's hard for a bunch of reasons. One set of ways where it's hard is like, we all, we all live inside of our own stories. And for a lot of purposes, that serves us fine. Like, it's great to be inside your story. One thing I was thinking about is like, you know, the movie I'm in, like, I'm the protagonist, you know? And there's all these like extras who are like walking around me. Like when I walk down the street, I walk past like a thousand extras. Every one of those extras is inside of a movie where they're a protagonist and I'm an extra. Those are really different movies and they're different stories. And that's true of, you know, even our closest relationships. I have a little son. It's really interesting to think, all right, he's living a story where like I'm the father in that story. And you think about like the role of that, you know, like I have this whole story where I was like a teenager and I have all these needs and wants now. But it's like, oh, in his story, he's the main character. The main character is a little boy, and the little boy has a father, and that's me. And conversely, right? You know, I have a story where I have this whole life, and a little boy shows up. So we're just all sort of living inside our stories that are very different from each other. And that's normal, and it's natural, but it really makes communication hard, because we tend to communicate from within our stories. And so part of what you need to do to communicate is to try to figure out how you can craft a story that makes sense for both of you and get out of that mindset of being in your own story. Mm -hmm. And what I'm kind of hearing you say between the lines is that in order to do that, right, in order to get out of one's own story and to be genuinely curious about somebody else's, or at least be open to the idea that somebody else's story may not map to ours, is to have a sense of empathy. Yeah. Right? It's to have that sense of humility to say, you know what, my story as Bakhtasha Hadi doesn't necessarily map to Misha's, right? And vice versa. Yeah. And, and when you say like it may not map, I, I'll go stronger. I say it absolutely will not map. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it's, it can't be the same. Mm -hmm. um, and that's in fact why we have to have conversations. <laughs> if we both had the same story, we wouldn't have to talk. You know? Right, 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 right. So, so that's exactly right. That's the purpose of these conversations. So let's talk about that. So what is the first step for two people, let's say, to begin that process? How, what, like help us understand what that actually looks like step by step. If you're actually looking for like practical tips for a conversation, I think very often a really important first step is to have shared agreement about the actual nature of the conversation. A theory I have that's backed by no data except my own experience and observation, but a strong theory I have is that in a vast number of conversations that don't go well, that what actually happened is that before the conversation even started, the parties aren't actually in disagreement about the nature of the conversation. By that, by the nature of the conversation, what I mean are things like, what are we talking about? What outcomes are we hoping to have from this conversation? Who needs to be involved? How long are we talking for? If we're making a decision, how's that decision being made? Am I involving you in the conversation because I want your feedback, and then I'm going to make a decision on my own? Or is this a decision that's going to be, going to be made collaboratively? How long are we talking for? Are we going to come back to this? Or are we trying to figure it all out today? Things like that. 
that very often what happens is there's disagreement about those things. So one just really practical tip is to make sure that the other person's agrees, hey, I want to talk about this, and that that needs to be collaborative. The way to get better outcomes in a conversation is to make it collaborative. Maybe we can come to that in a second. But but so even the part that needs to be collaborative is the design or the conversation, the nature of the conversation. You need to be collaborative and need to really make sure that you both have agreement. If you have a conversation, the other person doesn't want to be in that conversation, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hearing you say, Misha, is that the first practical step is to really frame the conversation that you want to have with the other person. It's about framing it. Yeah. And that sounds really complicated, but sometimes it's really something as easy as like, hey, I want to talk to you about X. Have you got a minute? Yes. You know, when's good? Now's great. Good. It's as simple as that. But the difference between doing that and just diving into telling the person the thing you want to tell them without first getting their permission to have the conversation makes an enormous difference. So you really want their consent. You really want their consent to have the conversation. And sometimes it's just as simple as asking for that consent. Mm hmm. And so once we have that consent or that permission and the first step is kind of taken, then what's next? What's the thing that follows this whole framing and permission and consent step? So the overall thing that you want to do, I think, lots of difficult conversations, the way that we go into them is it's sort of like the parties are working against each other in some way. Like I'm trying to do something and you're trying to resist the thing that I'm doing and you're trying to do something and I'm trying to resist the thing that you're doing. So for example, I might be trying to persuade you that I'm right. You know, we disagree about something and I'm trying to persuade you that I'm right and you're trying to persuade me that you're right. So we're working against each other. Or um, we have different ideas about how to proceed and I'm trying to make things go my way and you're trying to make things go your way and those are different ways. So we're working against each other. And if you just sort of picture like two fists sort of pushing against each other, it's hard to make progress. If we're both working, but we're pushing against each other, it's very hard for us to move forward. And the thing I want to suggest is that you almost always can, and it's sometimes not obvious that you can, but the shift that you want to make if you can, is to make it so that you're working with each other. Now, that doesn't mean that you gloss over differences of opinion or differences of outcome. You can still hold those by working together. So an example is, I think an example you gave was, oh, like we're trying to like sort out a difficult problem together is to sort of say like, hey, you know, let's work on this and let's try to figure out if we can come up with a solution that works pretty well for both of us. You want, you and I might want really different things from each other. We have very different sets of desires, but maybe there's some way that if we put our heads together, we can come up with a solution that works for us both. And so figuring out how to do that, or you and I are in a really nasty conflict, we might want really different things, but maybe a thing that we both want is to see if we can find a way to reduce the intensity of the nastiness of this conflict. That might be something we both want, say, while still respecting the fact that we see things differently, that we want things that are different from each other, we might want some things that are actually opposed to each other. In whatever way we would like for this conflict to resolve itself in a way where at the end, our relationship isn't destroyed, if that's the thing. you know. So, so finding those common goals and finding common goals that don't, that don't gloss over the differences. So, so an example I, I think about a lot is very often people have very strong differences of opinion about, say, political issues that are really important to them. And what people typically do is they try to persuade each other, and then you're working against each other. But another way to do it is if, if someone says something that you really disagree with, that you can say, like, and in a way that doesn't hide your opinions, say, I'm really surprised to hear you say that. I see things so differently than you do. And that it's hard for me to, to be honest, it's hard for me to even imagine how someone would think that. And so what I'd love to do is let's see if we can figure out how we come to this disagreement. I'd really like to understand why we see this so differently. And that's something you can work on together. And you might actually learn things from that. 
The other thing I think very often on differences of opinion too is that very often when people want to have those conversations, for instance, they want to have them with loved ones or things like that. And what people are really concerned about is, I think this difference of opinion is damaging to our relationship. And so then that's in fact the thing to talk about. And so what people try to do is say, wow, it's hard for me that you think things so differently for me. What I'll try to do is change your mind about everything. But of course, that, then you're working against each other. But what you might say instead is say, wow, it's, I feel like it's really damaging to our relationship how differently we see things. I wonder if there's some way that we can explore those differences, not with the aim of understanding the issue, but as a way to see if we can repair or retain this relationship, help this relationship from being damaged by it. Your dad, who has different politics from you, is probably more amenable to having a conversation where you try to figure out how to still have a loving relationship despite your differences than he will be to a conversation where you try to convince him to change his mind about the things he's believed for 30 years. I think the fundamental thing that a number of people will need to kind of find a sense of resolution is to deploy radical listening. Mm -hmm. It's the idea where it's really hard unless you're actually listening to the person. But I think what people need is they need to feel like they're heard. Yeah. Right. And what's difficult is, is to give people that time to say, Misha, I'm actually listening to you. I may completely disagree. The data may prove otherwise. Sure. But I think what we're saying is, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the idea of not only just listening, but radically listening to see if there's something that we're missing. What does that mean for you? I mean, I like that. What does that, what does that radical listening mean for you? Tell me a bit more yeah. about that. So... Listening is the idea, and everybody's here, everybody's talked about like the difference between hearing and listening. Mm -hmm. For me, radical listening is one step deeper whereby you quite literally step into a relationship or you step into a conversation whereby you're in it to learn something that you may have not already understood about that person or their perspective or the story that they're telling themselves about you. So it's the idea of Misha tell me how you see me in the world. And what I'm asking for is share something with me about what I don't know about myself. Like help me understand what my blind spots are. And that in itself, like the idea of radical means like I'm completely open to what you're going to say, right? what you're going to share, and I'm going to do it from a place of not judging what you present to this conversation. And so I think that's really what I'm kind of saying with this term radical listening. It's like, I may hate what you have to share with me. I may completely dislike it, but I'm giving you the opportunity and or the permission to quite literally tell me what you need to share. Like we are right. having the conversation that you want to have right now. Right. And so that last part really connects with me with that idea of sort of having a collaborative process to be like, what's the conversation you want to have right now? That idea of that, you know, that you really want to let them have the conversation that they want to have. I think that one thing that I heard you saying too is that you might be open to the possibility of changing your mind about some things, that you're open to hearing things that you don't want to hear. That's all super duper important. And for some stuff, that's really important, like for feedback conversations or things like that. Like it's really easy, you know, if, you're, if your partner like is upset with you about something, it's like really easy to be like, ah, like they're wrong. But it's like, that is not the correct response when your partner is upset with you about something. And they might in fact be factually wrong about something, but it's also like, you probably want to know why your partner's upset with you about it. And to me, part of what radical listening means is sort of like reframing it into something that's useful or meaningful to you too. Like you might get feedback that's delivered to you in a way that feels not right or not helpful, but you're like, oh, right. But at the same time, you know, there's something in there that's useful to me or I can make use of. Mm -hmm. And it's really about 
understanding and awareness that you may not already have that somebody can provide to you, right? That's, I think that's kind of what I'm saying with all this. I think another thing for me is that very often it's like listening to the music and not the lyrics to listen to like the feelings that are going on. So sometimes the, the really important part of listening is to get that like, oh, this is really, really important to you. Oh, you're really upset. So it might be that like, you're really upset with me and everything you're saying, that all the words you're saying all just seem like just useless word salad to me. But what's really important is like, wow, you're really upset. And the person may never have actually said the words, I'm really upset. But that's the thing to listen for. It's like, oh, you're really upset. Or, oh, yeah, I get the sense you need something from me right now that I'm not giving to you. And, and, you, and again, they haven't said those words, but that's the listening. And I think another really important thing with listening too, and this ties into the second part, I think, which is that I was talking with a friend of mine about this idea just the other day about, something, about a concept that I think comes from Buddhism, that it's the concept of near enemies. The idea of the near enemy, I think in Buddhism, the idea is like that there are these sort of virtues or traits that you want to have. And then there's like, they're near enemies. So compassion is a virtue you want to have. And the near enemy of compassion in Buddhism is, is pity. So they're like, it's not actually useful to go around pitying people, but you can mistake. Pity looks a lot like compassion. And you might do that instead. So I think there are some near enemies for listening. One thing I've heard people say a lot, I hear people a lot of my workshops, is I say like, it's really important to listen. And they say, right, right. When people are upset, you just really have to let them vent. And I'm like, letting people vent is a near enemy of listening. If you're sitting there and someone's talking to you and you're thinking, I'm being a great communicator because I'm letting them vent, the story you're actually telling yourself is like, they just have a problem where words have to come out of me. And my job is just to sit here and not do anything while the words come out till they feel better. And from the outside, it's very hard to tell the difference between actually listening and just being quiet while someone else talks. And you can only really know that through introspection. So if you just think like, oh, I'm just letting them vent because they need to vent, you're not actually listening. If you're not open to having your mind change, if you're not open to learning anything new, if you're not open to any of those things, which I think is, happens a lot. People are letting the other person talk, but they're not actually listening. And I think one of the obstacles to it, and this is one of the things where my thinking about this stuff has changed a lot over the years, when you were talking, you were like, oh, like, I think it's important to let people talk and hear what they say, even if what they're saying, I think, I forget what you said, like, even what they're saying is, like, totally factually inaccurate, like, it's important to hear that. And there's a part of me that's like, I think it's important to let them say that. And at the same time, there's a second skill, which I think is really important for conversations. When I came into this stuff, I was like, wow, people really need to get better at listening. We all need to work on that. It's hard, it's important, and it's true. And at the same time, I think that people also need to get better at saying difficult things. So you both need to listen and you need to talk. It's hard to hear hard things and it's hard to say hard things. And they're not opposite skills, they're actually skills that support and complement each other. That being able to say what you think in a way that that's effective is important. I believe that at a certain point, if someone's telling you their side of the story and your perception is that most of their side of the story is just based on things that are just clearly factually inaccurate, I think there's a point at which it's gonna become hard for you to actually listen in a productive way anymore. That at a certain point, what's happening is you're letting them talk, but you're not gonna be changed by that. And I think the part of the solution there is that at some point to have a, to have a really genuine conversation with the person, on the one hand, you really do need to listen to what they say. And at some point you need to say, wow, I'm really surprised to hear you say that. Because my perception is that a number of things that you said are just factually inaccurate. 
and I'd like to share that with you. So, so you know, and, and I'm curious why, where that difference arises from. I think many of us fall into the mistake of thinking like, oh, what it means to be good listeners is to not challenge things like that. And And the more I think about it, I think that, and the more I look at it, the more I think that our inclination to not challenge those things actually ends up making us worse listeners. I'm just being a good listener, but you're not actually hearing what they're saying because you've pretty much ruled it out because you're like, oh, it's just a pack of lies. And so figuring out how to share that concern in the goal of listening better. Say, listen, I, I really want to understand your point of view. And an obstacle to me is that it feels to me that the last five things you've said are supported by points that as near as I can tell are factually just not true. And that's making it harder for me to understand your point of view. I wonder if you could help me out with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's the idea of engagement. Sitting down, being curious, wanting to know where that person's coming from, what my blind spots may be. How do we do that now just on a meta level? How do we do that now as we're becoming more and more dependent on technological devices to kind of uh, facilitate these conversations. What are the what are the barriers that exist? What are way, the ways in which you know make this kind of thing easier? Help me understand where your mind is with all that. Sure. I mean, when we talked earlier about the nature of the conversation about process, that I think like bringing consciousness to that is really important. So in all this stuff, I think one way to think about it is you just want to bring consciousness to these things as opposed to just doing them reactively. So anything, just like someone says something to you that stings and like your whole reactive thing is like, well, I'm just going to protect myself from that. But you're like, no, no, I'll bring consciousness to it. I know that sometimes there's useful feedback in the world and that's hard. So one thing to bring consciousness to among the many things to bring consciousness to in the line of conversation is what medium are we going to use for it? And that's bounded by what's possible. And we have so many different media. And one thing I really want to emphasize is they, they all have pros and cons. Like, I think that a lot of people kind of want to just like trash a lot of the digital media, but they have pros and cons and to weigh the pros and cons for this situation. And so, you know, the pros of like actually sitting down in person with someone are that it's very high bandwidth and it probably maximizes certain kinds of empathy and I can see your body language. And, and I think there's something just sort of, I don't want to say mysterious, but something about us as humans that like just feels more connected to people when we're with them than when we're not, you know. But there's disadvantages to face-to-face -to -face too, like like compared to say email. There's advantages of email over face-to-face. -face. It gives me time to really reflect on my response. If I'm face-to-face -face with you, I might get really riled up, but if you email, I can give myself 15 minutes and give myself a minute to calm down. It, email also creates a record which can be used, you know, bad in some situations, but great in other situations, you know. And I think all the media, I think they all have pros and cons, but I think the big thing is just to be really conscious about it. And then in terms of process, to be able to say to someone, Hey, let's talk about this on the phone. Let's get on a Zoom call. Let's meet. And so to understand that that's something you can do or vice versa too. You can be in a meeting and be like, hey, let's follow up with this by email, you know, to be really conscious about what tool you're using, suggest to the other person, see if it's agreeable to them. You can explain your reasoning too. Now, very often I'll email people with clients. I mean, just a really common email I send to clients. Say, hey, I have a thing I want to talk to you about. I feel like it's the kind of thing that might be more easily figured out in a 10 minute call than in a million emails. When's a good time to talk? So you brought up something really curious, the idea of consciousness. So I want to kind of explore this with you here. Evolutionarily, you know, there was a mutation about 90,000 years ago where we were able to, you know, form language, yeah. have language to better understand the world mm -hmm. around us. Yeah. At least that's what linguists and cognitive scientists are, are trying to better understand. Yeah. And so help me understand where your mind is with all this, Misha, 
like what do you think the purpose of language is and help me understand like you know the connective tissue between you know what goes in our that that voice that goes on in our mind mm-hmm. and then how that plays into how we understand who we are in relationship to the world huh um <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a that's a thousand year long question but it it literally is the crux of the work that you do right yeah. because you started the conversation by saying we all tell ourselves our own stories mm-hmm. we're all living in our own movie yeah so where does that movie come from as it pertains to language and communication well okay so i'll give you a couple i'll give you a couple of thoughts on that which may be helpful maybe not when is it just in terms of that voice in our head one thing that we just talk about a lot just as like a kind of tip this is sort of just a truism in this communication work is that the voice in your head is really good at telling you what needs to be said, but not very good at telling you how to say it. When I talked earlier about that, that like, oh, a huge part of these important conversations is being able to actually say what you, what needs to be said in the communication business, we call that curiosity and transparency. So curiosity is like listening is getting good at listening. Transparency is getting good at saying what needs to be said. That a really good tool for that is that voice inside your head. In the hardest conversations that we're in, what's happening is that there's actually like a voice inside our head that's screaming something that's usually different than what we're actually, that's actually coming out of our mouths. And that's a sign that something needs to be fixed. It's a sign that you're in a difficult conversation. It's a sign that there's some issue you need to be addressed. You might or might not be able to do it right in that moment, but to understand that you want to really listen to what that voice is saying and figure out a way to give that some respect. So that's part of it about that inner voice. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to figure out whether or not, Misha, it's possible to have a thought and not be able to put a word to it, right? So is it possible to think something without being able to put language to it? And I don't mean that from a place of not being able to remember a word, but quite literally from the ability of trying to map thought to consciousness. Yeah, I think it tricks us a little bit. Like I think increasingly that the that sort of consciousness and language create in us a bit of an illusion. And the illusion is that I'm this kind of conscious, rational creature who's in charge of what he does and thinks. And I think that the increasing evidence from psychology and from neuroscience is that that's not true and that that's an illusion. You know, that in fact, the way the brain works is there's lots and lots and lots and lots of modules and they're all driving us in various directions. Sometimes the directions are aligned. Sometimes directions are not aligned with each other. And that what the conscious mind does is it then like, in a best case, what it does is it sort of tells a story after the fact about what we're doing and why it's reasonable, you know? And I think there's, I think this is a pretty uncontroversial claim among people who do neuroscience. I'm probably not putting it exactly right, but that, that at some level we have this illusion of us as being this one conscious thinking, verbally thinking self, and that that's really an illusion, that that's really not how, <laughs> just, it's just not how it works. I mean, I think on just like the brain level, that's really interesting. But I think on the behavioral level, I think trying to figure out how to sort of reconcile those different parts of you is really interesting. And so understanding that, like, for instance, a lot of the stuff that goes on when we get into difficult conversations and why does that happen is there are parts of your nervous system that are doing things that are in there that are evolved, preparing you for a literal battle. It's not figurative. They're like, you know, I feel threatened in this certain way that for most of our evolutionary history, the way you might do that would be to like, oh, now it's time for me to have a fight. You know, blood is rushing towards muscles that are going to help you in a fight and rushing away from muscles that aren't going to help you in a fight and all those kinds of things, even though like you're not going to have one. And then what happens is you then tell yourself a story that kind of supports that. 
But a lot of it's coming from these parts of your nervous system that are invisible to you, that are serving needs, that are obsolete needs for, from 20,000 years ago. And sort of understanding that, I think, is helpful. Yeah. And, and another thing that was really helpful for me in terms of understanding human nature and the ways in which human beings kind of behave is realizing that human beings aren't rational creatures, but we are rationalizing creatures. I read that once and it's always stuck and it's really helped me kind of just better navigate and better understand other people because that is quite literally what's happening. People will make a decision and then rationalize the decision after the fact. Yeah, that's right. Right? I mean, I'm not making that up. Yeah, and so that's what language does. So that's what, when you're like, that's what, that's what language is for. Gotcha. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's exactly. for a lot of other stuff too. Right, right. Like, you know. Um, Misha, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'd like to come to a close by asking you uh, one final question, if I may. How would you go about answering the question, what is your message for the world? I think at some level it is the thing. I mean, much as I've said, it's not all about listening. At some level, I think it is that thing about that it's worth really trying to understand that your story is just your story. And I'll go beyond that, I think, which is that getting out of that would benefit the people around you, but also would benefit you. I think that's the deeper message is that all of these things that you can do that sound like there are ways to be a better person can also make you a happier and more well-off person too. So I think that's part of it as well. Misha Globerman, thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for being the light in the darkness. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashita Hadi and theme music by Kais Esar. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.